Welcome to the Historias podcast. I'm Foster Chamberlain. The Paneros were a family of poets for whom melodrama and literature were a way of life. Joining me to discuss their story in its historical context is Aaron Shulman, a journalist and author of the recent book The Age of Disenchantments, the epic story of Spain's most notorious literary family in the long shadow of the Spanish Civil War, out last year from HarperCollins. Reading your book, it became clear to me that the Panero family has become kind of an obsession of yours, and you describe yourself as a member of a whole group of people known as Paneristas or Panerologos. So how did you first get interested in this Panero family, and what drew you to keep finding out more? Yeah, so I was living in Madrid in 2012. My wife is, is Spanish. She, she's from Cordoba. Um, and we were a friend of ours, uh, Javi, who's a, just a real freaky, um, the scene was uh, invited us over and he, you know, he knew me, he knew I liked literature, I liked movies and I liked Spanish history. And he's like, I've, I've got this documentary for you. I'm not gonna say much, but I think you're gonna, you're gonna like it. Um, so it was, it was, the documentary was El Desencanto, which is this cult documentary in Spain that was made about the, the Pinedo family released in 1976 and became, uh, became iconic because of, well, the family is just bizarre, fascinating, brilliant, you know, sort of disturbed, but also the film became part of kind of symbolic in the process of the, the transition to democracy. So we, wa we watched the movie and I just completely, I probably understood only maybe 50% of the, 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 what they say, because they speak so fast and there's it's just this whole matrix of cultural references, which I just didn't know a lot, but it sort of left the, the film just like, wow, I want to know more about this. I, I love Roberto Bolaño, the Chilean writer. And it felt like, almost like they were products of his imagination. I was like, is and then it turned out he had fictionalized one of the sons and in a, a few of his books and so it just felt like this thread that I started pulling on and then I I just wanted to know more understand everything um, the documentary was clearly just a tiny fragment of a much bigger story of this family so then I wrote an article for an American magazine the believer about the documentary and I interviewed the director of El Desencanto and then from there I kind of I kind of kept getting more and more obsessed over like the next two or three years we moved to the US and then at a certain point I realized that there was a book here and that no one had ever written it and and, and by that time I was a part of this group which you know it's sort of like you know there's this group of people in Spain who just find the Pinedos really fascinating they've seen the documentary five ten twenty times um, some of them have actually you know gone into academia and and study you know the poetry of the family other people just love love the film and there's a follow-up documentary um, called Después de Tantos Años. So yeah, that was, that was how it all started for me. And I've, you know, I've seen that when my book came out, I screened the documentary in, you know, in like over a dozen cities in the U.S. because I bought the, I bought the American rights to it for three years. And so I've seen the documentary so many times and, and I don't, I don't get tired of it. I mean, it's real, it's just really fascinating. I kind of, I just really love the family as, as screwed up as they are. So let's talk a little bit more about the story of this family. And let's start with the father, Leopoldo. Uh, where did he come from and what was his family background? 
Um, so Leopoldo Paneda was from Leon, the town of Astorga, uh, which which I was able to visit. Um, it's a it's a provincial, you know, city in, in northern Spain. Um, he was from uh, you know an upper middle class family with with a fairly liberal liberal beliefs. Um, I think especially for the the region and their their economic status. And then he went to Madrid. Um, for his kind of college years and then and then post-college, although he also lived in, in England and France because he wanted to be a, a diplomat. And so he, you know, in the, so this is the, you know, the early then mid 1930s and he, and he swung to the left kind of in keeping with being a literary, a kind of a, a literary person who was brought up in a, in a less conservative environment. So he he was a, a communist, wore uh, the hammer and sickle pin in his in his lapel. It was uh, kind of il, I, the el señorito comunista, like kind of the the rich kid communist um, mm -hmm. from that era. And and yeah, he he really you know was a, a fixture in the literary scene in Madrid um, in in the thirties before the Civil War, which was a you know a really fertile, exciting period um, for poetry. So can you tell us a little bit more about his time in Madrid being involved in that literary flourishing of that time, uh, sometimes known as the generation of 27? I understand mm -hmm. he was friends with uh, just about everybody who was part of that movement um, at that time. Yeah, so yeah, he and his brother, um, Juan, who actually died during the Civil War, not in combat, combat but actually in a car accident, they were both a big part of the literary scene and they were um they were best friends both of them with Luis Rosales who most people know just as you know the guy whose family uh hid, hid Lorca in Granada and then and then there's been all sorts of rumors that the you know that Rosales was involved I think at this point it's established that it was one of his brothers um that uh, Rosales brothers that was the one who betrayed him but either way that's been sort of what's this cloud hanging over Luis Rosales, but he was also with Leopoldo Panero, just, you know, a part of this poetic scene, which obviously there was some sort of political pluralism there, even if it was more, much more to the left, Luis Rosales was, you know, more of a conservative Catholic, but was part of this group. He was close with Lorca. And so Leopold, the three of them, Juan, y Leopoldo Panero and y Rosales were, you know, they were kind of the slightly younger, younger guys on the scene, you know, like Lorca, um, and his, his generation was a bit older, but, you know, they were get-togethers with, um, you know, Miguel Hernandez was kind of a contemporary of theirs. Neruda was their, their sort of a mentor of sorts, who was a bit older, Lorca to Vicente Alessandre. It was just this really, you know, incredible time. And I have this photo in my book, I think it's from 1935, of this, uh, Alessandre had won this award, and you have sort of everybody's in the picture and Leopoldo is next to Neruda and it's a sort of very sad photo because it was like then you trace the lives of the maybe the like 15 people in this photo and several of them died and with the next couple of years some went to prison others went to into exile and then others made certain political compromises that that completely um changed their legacy so it's just a really interesting moment in, in time, which uh, which completely disappeared, and Leopoldo was sort of that that sort of perfect upper class middle you know, leftist um, 
poet and he and he had a you know he would have had a whole different career in life and had ahead of him if if the civil war hadn't happened that was the case for you know everyone in spain so what was the fate of leopoldo panero when the civil war broke out especially given the fact that he did have those leftist sympathies as you mentioned right so he was in um astorga when the civil war broke out and so, you know, was, he saw people, you know, right away, people were getting killed in the street. The, it, it, um, the, the town immediately went to the uprising, um, you know, and his father was a Mason. Um, and then Leopoldo and his brother were sort of known as, you know, like very strongly supportive of the Republic. And so what happened was Juan, his brother, actually very quickly joined the uprising to kind of camouflage and shield himself and I think mm -hmm. I think sometimes we lose perspective now of the of when people did things like that that Spain had this history of like the pronunciamientos that were just like very quick transfers of power and not a three-year civil war so I think Juan even though he was a supporter of the republic Leopoldo's brother joined up because he's like this is going to be over in a couple months I'm just going to kind of hide here and then everything will settle back into place and obviously that's that's not what happened um and but but leopoldo didn't didn't join up right away um and so you know he ended up being arrested someone someone did not denounced him whether it was a you know a, a neighbor i talked to his niece who was actually like she i think now she's in her 90s and she she was you know a child at the time and she you know when she talked about the time she talks about como la mala gente that denounced him out of i think it could have been out of you know political reasons or just these sort of more um small town jealousies or mm -hmm. rivalries in, in any case the uh, you know soldiers came for him and his brother-in-law um took them to a, a prison or you know a convent that had been converted into a prison in leon they were you know they were had their heads shaved they were thrown into to cells um you know, with other people they knew who, you know, were executed. And then Leopoldo's brother-in-law was executed. And it seemed like he was, you know, going to be executed very soon. And then his mother uh, sort of sprang into action. She was a distant cousin of Franco's wife. Uh, so, she, uh, so she went to Salamanca, sought her out, asked for a reprieve for her son. And then, and then it happened. Um, so he was released from prison, probably, you know, probably right before he would have been executed. Then he, he kind of tried to, to, to kind of blend in a bit longer without joining any side or joining the uprising. But then the soldiers came for him again. And it just, I think it just became inevitable. He needed to either, either, either join um, the, the nationalist forces or was going to get killed. So, so he did. And, you know, Luis Rosales and other more conservative friends of him were already, you know, an important part of the propaganda machine of of Franco's army so um Leopoldo sort of moved between them and then actually being out in in the field and so to make a long story short by the end of the war he's writing he's written some fascist verses some of them used as propaganda in their materials that were being printed other things he did kind of sign his name to but he went underwent some sort of political conversion which I think was a mix of Kind of opportunism, survival, and and just I don't know maybe you know he was a Catholic and a, and a 
and a believer and it's kind of like all of this mixed together that by the time he he came out you know even if he wouldn't have called himself a fascist he was he found parts of the Balanche ideology to be moving he had he let himself become an instrument of the um you know of of Franco's war and and his life you know completely changed we'll take a short pause when we come back we're going to look at the family and the life that Leopoldo created uh, after the war. mentioned after the war uh, Leopoldo also winds up becoming a family man and he meets the woman who would become his wife Felicidad Blanc so could you tell us a bit about um, how they met and what her story was yes yeah, so Felicidad so she you know it's interesting in the sense of uh, Leopoldo's family was this more left-leaning family caught um, in you know the nationalist territory during the war, and then Felicidad's situation was the inverse, in that she was from a conservative upper class uh, family. Her father was a famous surgeon; it was conservative, uh, you know, supported the monarchy. And they were caught in Madrid, and they lived in the Salamanca neighborhood during the outbreak of the civil war. And the, the whole war, they were there, and you know, they, and they were they were you know. Um, in a very vulnerable, vulnerable position for the way, especially in those the first months when there was a lot of, you know, families who were just who were just killed or you know in in ways that really weren't um, in keeping with any sort of human human values, you know, um, beyond kind of class warfare. So she, mm -hmm. she was in a very different position, but she had a lot in common with Leopoldo in the sense that she was always obsessed with literature. She was a real dreamer. And almost found was more enamored of, of literature than than life itself. So then after the war, you know, her brother had been had, her brother had joined up. He had been you know a monarchist and conservative. Ended up doing the opposite of Leopoldo. He, he had joined up with the the republic and then ended up getting killed in the battle of the the Ebro. So this kind of again another another inverse situation which was happening all, all across Spain. Mm -hmm. So after the war, you know, they're both they both lost brothers. They've both been kind of broken by the war in some sense, and they had their young idealism beaten out of them. And so Leopoldo had returned to Madrid. He was going to try to carve out a career as a diplomat or a, in, in or kind of like as the, in the the new cultural establishment, which he eventually did and be kind of became kind of an art star. But so they meet in 1940. And, you know, it, on, on one level, I feel like they never really quite knew or got each other. But what they but they were sort of custom made for her in the sense of like, Leopoldo was looking for a muse. And Felicidad was very drawn to the idea of being a muse. She wanted mm -hmm. 
she was more interested in literature or the liter literarizing of life than life itself. And Leopoldo was a person who turned all his experiences into poetry and literature. So there was a sort of perfect combination. And in a way, I think that those two tendencies kept them from actually seeing who the others were. So, and so, but they, they got married. I mean, their, their love letters from 1940, you know, are incredible when they spent the summer apart. And it's like, they're, they're just so in, they're so in love with the process of putting their, their love into words or their, mm -hmm. their feeling. So, so yeah, so they got married, they end up having uh, three, three kids and starting a family and, and the kids also inherit, they inherit their parents' literary uh, obsessions and the sense of living life as if it was literature um, and made for an interesting, interesting family situation. Yeah, you, can you tell us a bit more about those three uh, sons, Juan Luis, Leopoldo, and Michi, and um, what kind of job Leopoldo and Felicidad did uh, as parents? So Juan Luis was the, the, the oldest son, um, born in 1942. And, you know, in, in many ways, you know, in many ways he was separate from the family because um, he ended up starting to go to boarding school when he was, I think, you know, I think 11 or 12 in El Escorial. And so from that age onward, he kind of was separate from, from his family and clashed with his father when he was, when he was a teenager. But then after his father's death, he kind of wanted to be the torchbearer of the family legacy and you know, he ended up being kind of the most traditional and having this idea of he needed to honor the family name. And then later there was this sort of rivalry, a rivalry of who was the poetic heir. But, um, but Juan Luis was, you know, a, 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 you know, a young guy coming up in the, you know, he joined the Communist Party when he was a, a teen. And I ended up finding out that he had worked as a, like, you know, not, didn't do a lot of work, but actually worked as a sort of intelligence agent for indirectly for Cuba in um, in Spain, like because he knew some of his his father's uh, literary friends were, you know, this one particular Cuban intellectual who, who lived in Spain and was very conservative. So it's interesting, you know, a typical sort of rebellion against the father, although later he became more conservative, but he was, he was a poet and, you know, he's a pretty, in, in the, the poetry world today, yeah, people really respect him. There was a kind of later generation in the, in the eighties who really rediscovered his work and, and values him. And it's, it's sort of, it's traditional, but, but beautiful poetry that he wrote. And then Leopoldo Maria is the sort of most, most mythologized famous son. He was the second born. He was, I mean, I think it's indisputable that he was a genius. He was, you know, reciting poetry in a trance when he was three years old. And you read this stuff and it's like better than, you know, a lot of poetry adults write. Um, and, wow. you know, and he was an early teen, he was reading all of Marx, you know, philosophy. And I mean, for every, everyone I talked to who uh, knew him, what you know really said there you know he was the smartest person i've ever met um but he was also a total a total mess by the by his his late teenage years of whatever psychiatric diagnosis you you want to make is a little tricky but i think you know it was some form of schizophrenia and then a lot of drug use a lot of living to pushing to the edge in every way and um and so he became kind of famous as this maldito poet in a way i think of him as importing 
the um, the, the sort of French uh, Maudit tr tradition, you know, of these crazy French poets who used opium, they all slept together and they lived these reckless, dangerous lives. He sort of imported that model into Spain, I think, mm -hmm. kind of consci consciously and unconsciously. So it's tricky with, with Leopoldo, I think, you know, there's people who like, you know, a lot of people who didn't like him, partly because he was a hard guy to have at a party. He was pretty obnoxious. But I think what's fascinating about him as, you know, he, he did write just incredible poetry um, is that I think people, people couldn't tell where the, where his actual insanity ended in sort of the performance of insanity, you know, began. And so that blurring I think, I mean, it's really fascinating. It made a lot of people who knew him very frustrated with him, but eventually it turned him into a real, a real, a real myth that in the, the sort of the myth, the myth eclipsed the person. And then Michi was the youngest kind of typical, maybe like the, the more spoiled one, the one who like, well, on the one hand feels overshadowed by his brothers, but on the other hand develops a lot of skills in order to like navigate having these two big personalities. Um, and he would, he really rejected, or at least said he rejected the idea of being a, a writer. It's kind of the, the family profession, like, you know, doctor, everyone's a doctor or lawyer in one family and his family, everybody was poets or writers. And he, he rejected that. And so he was more, I think of as more as like a scenester. He was like, especially once the older he got, he was very charismatic, funny, um, attractive. And he was kind of a womanizer, a party boy a man, man about town, and he kind of spurned writing, even though he was very literary, very uh, well-read, and like his brothers sort of framed, and his, and his parents framed everything in a, as kind of literature in a very literary way. So they, the bro three brothers were all very different, and they all kind of represent different ways of looking at the world, different ways of experiencing literature, and then through the transitions, that kind of different positioning toward towards Spain as, as after Franco's death. Besides the fact that just all of them were very smart and very interested in literature, how do you think that the way that their parents raised them uh, might have influenced these three sons? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the father wrote, you know, poems about each child after they were born, you know, mm -hmm. so it's like that, like this uh, a birthright in, in a sense. Um, you know, it's sort of like sometimes with the Banero sons, there's people would be like, you know, it, Felicidad is to blame for the, the mess their lives were, or their father was to blame. I mean, you know, on the one hand, it was very, it was just a very traditional Spanish household. And I think that's also part of why, like, the, the love of Felicidad and Leopoldo dissipated was because, you know, it was just a horribly patriarchal relationship in which she was just kind of erased by her husband and kind of was a servant and annulled. And so a lot of, the sons in a way say that they didn't even know their mother existed as a person until their father died and, and he mm -hmm. died when they were you know they were still in 62 so they were still Juan Luis was 20 Leopoldo was in his you know early teens and Michi was still a kid I, I think them growing up later on or maybe or maybe kind of unconsciously uh, Felicidad's kind of literary dreamer quality filtered into their approach. Although in a certain sense, she was, I think, just the caregiver doing the day-to-day -day -day stuff. But, um, you know, their, their father was a poet. They understood, you know, he was, he was a poet. There was always poets in their house. His books were coming out. Literature was a big thing, thing for them. I mean, to the point that, you know, 
I don't know, most kids when they're in their teens with their brothers, they're, they're probably physically wrestling and that's how they're getting out their rivalries. Whereas when these kids were teens, they were, they played out their rivalries by who could recite Lorca poems the best. So it's a, a very, you know, particular upbringing. Um, but I think it was hard that their, their father was a drink, a drinker. He hit them sometimes. So I think you had this contrast between poetry, really romanticized family life and in that very traditional Spanish way. So you had, yeah, you had this, the, the literature of family life versus the reality. And obviously those two things were not always the same, if ever. All right. So we'll take another uh, short break and then we'll discuss a bit the fate of Leopoldo's family and what it all came to mean for Spain. So you mentioned that after uh, Leopoldo's death, there was kind of this sibling rivalry between his two oldest sons, Juan Luis and Leopoldo Maria. So can you tell us a bit more about how that played out? Yeah, and, and sometimes with this, it's a little kind of hard to separate what really happened versus the family mythology of what happened. But, you know, I think in some sense, after Leopoldo's death, there was this power vacuum or, you know, or masculine authority figure vacuum. And so Juan Luis, the, the, the eldest son, kind of stepped up. He moved back home to be with Felicidad and kind of tried to play the father figure, which his, um, which his brothers ultimately rejected. But then he and Felicidad had this very kind of weird period where she started, she kind of rejected her whole old life of, of her husband's friends in that world and started going out to, to bars and art galleries with Juan Luis, who's, you know, in this, in this real artsy circle in, in Madrid. And she felt really at home there. People really got her and, and she kind of felt like she became herself. And then it's funny because then later Juan Luis and her sort of toyed with these little like incestuous tropes about like oh he was in the documentary you see it she you know she's like oh he was kind of like my new husband and Juan Luis talks about oh, we were in this restaurant and one and this waiter thought that I was my my mother's gigolo and that turned me on you know it's like I think that's where some of the mythologizing of it come through they're just they they just like to be provocative but ultimately I think there was this period of felicidad having the second youth uh, her and Juan Luis getting closer um, and him kind of being the man of the house, but it doesn't really work out. And the way that Nietzsche frames it is it doesn't work out because Leopoldo Maria, he becomes, you know, a mid and late teen and who's writing poetry. He's going to be known in Madrid. He's becoming celebrated. And so then there's this poetic, um, you know, battle for the throne between Juan Luis and Leopoldo uh, Maria in you know, in the end, I think Leopoldo Maria definitely has 
you know, a, a, had a bigger name and has a bigger name than as, as a poet than, than Juan Luis, although they each really kind of established themselves. But ultimately, you know, I think there was just a lot of personality. Like they just, they just didn't get along. They were very different. They'd also spend a lot of their youth apart because Juan Luis was in boarding school. And then Michi always calls himself the mute witness for that period that he was just kind of younger, standing on the sidelines watching this weird, this weird family restructuring um, play out. But I think it really speaks to the mentality of that time that they felt that there has to be some sort of father figure and Juan Luis felt yeah. that he had to try and fill that gap. And I also thought it was, it almost seems like kind of a replaying of the father's experience that they're going out in Madrid, there are these artistic circles, lots of partying. Yeah. I, I think you addressed this in the book. It, it reminds me of the La Movida period uh, in the 1980s, but I guess this, this is actually still during the dictatorship that they're doing all this partying, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the, I mean, in the 60s, when, you know, well, they always say Madrid was a city that, that never slept ever mm -hmm. um and it, but in the, you know in the 60s definitely i think you know obviously there had been some apertura in socially in spain you know the economy started to open up there's mass media was getting more of a, a toehold in, in spain so there's more outside influence you know it's gradually becoming more and more um permissive and so in the 60s you did start to, to get that and there was you know there was a you know gay bars and Felicidad specifically always felt really connected um, to gay men and Juan Luis had had gay friends and you know in both the sons of Leopoldo Maria and uh, Juan Luis experimented sexually and so that environment was starting to come up in the 60s and then in the 70s you know even before the the Franco's death it was really starting to explode and then La Movida in the 80s is sort of the apotheosis of of that almost where it it go it went from sort of in a way you can think of that that partying that free expression the permissiveness you know had a real political uh drive behind it of what it meant and then by the 80s it sort of hits its decadent phase where i can still see a lot of meaning political meaning in this in the sex and drugs and rock and roll of, of la movida but it almost goes so far the, the other direction where it's just kind of hedonism for the sake of hedonism although i see that as a natural result of you know a 40 of a, a 40 year dictatorship that, that that's where you got to get that out of your system mm -hmm. yeah yeah and, exactly and michi, and michi was kind of a key a key player culturally in la in la movida he had a, he had a bar he was just on the scene always yeah i thought that they were kind of a living example of that opening period, like you said, in the 1960s, early 1970s. And then the documentary about their family uh, comes out that you already mentioned uh, kind of inspired your interest in the whole story, El Desencanto. How did the Paneros tell the story of their family when they had the chance to do so on this film for a wide audience? Yeah, well, that's what's so fascinating about the the film is it's it's a battle of narratives. You know, you have the filmmaker who's just Jaime Chavarri, who's just trying to deal with these difficult personalities. It starts as this 20 document, 20 minute documentary it was supposed to be a short, but it's kind of a mess. And they realize it needs to be, you know, long, much longer. And Kereheta, the, the famous 
a Spanish producer says, okay, go ahead and make it, make it longer, make a feature length documentary. So Jaime, the director was just sort of trying to figure out how to manage these personalities, figure out what the story is. And then you have Michi, who in some ways was kind of like the shadow, the, the kind of ghost, ghost screenwriter in a sense of like he was giving Jaime, the director, different ideas. He was provoking his family in the, in certain scenes. He was planting certain narrative ideas about el fin de raza that the family was going to die to die out without um, without an heir and he kind of tells the rivalry so he was setting up these narrative threads then you have Juan Luis who has a different story that he he, he wants to tell kind of like in, in, in some ways giving his father more, a more balanced due and saying you know well he was even as a, a part of the the Francoist establishment. He was a person who tried to connect with exiles abroad. Then you have Felicidad, who's just sort of wanting to, she's wanting to tell her story and also sort of have a settling of scores with this marriage that didn't work out with being erased by the husband. And then you have Leopoldo Maria, who for the first half of the filming refused to be in the film. But then when he shows up, he really shows up and he just tried to, to, you know, tries to destroy what he thinks of as all the myths in the family. And he's incredibly charismatic on camera and has these amazing phrases he's like this mashup of like of like Lacan and Artaud and and his own ideas and he just has these sort of literary bombs that he he drops that made him then that's really what elevated him but the whole family into a myth but really it was I think of it as some is this visionary anticipation of the of the reality TV world we live in, of this, of where uh, you know the viewers, we the we the viewers, the voyeurs, um, meet the some very skilled exhibitionists um, who are a blast to watch and brilliant and strange. And so yeah, so it's just an amazing artifact and and story. And then that you know, and and they do are they're very critical of the father in it. So there's this kind of the killing of the father figure in the rewriting of the family myth, which then when the movie came out in 1976, you know, at the start of the, tr the transition, the, it was, the movie was read as a metaphor of, you know, the killing of the father figure, the saying, the unsayable, the, um, and then the idea of el desencanto, people, we, that term was adopted, you know, it became kind of a cultural buzzword um, at first to mean like el desencanto with, the Franco years, then the transition to democracy and people with the disencanto, the disenchantment with democracy of what they thought it would be versus what it is and the compromises. So it's just, the film's an amazing flashpoint and it works on so many levels. On the one hand, it's just the story of this weird family that, you know, it's kind of anthropological, but then also this family has a lot of universal themes to them that a lot of people relate to, so sibling relationships, legacy, um, and then it was read in this in the in the context of its time too, which uh, I, I think of it is for what you know the cultural landscape in the seventies. It was like the film went the equivalent of going viral, um, you know, for today. That it was this weird little thing that just got picked up and kept on rippling out, mm -hmm. and that and that's really what turned the family into myths and it's ultimately how I how I discovered them and how, how most people discover them. Thank you so much Aaron for sharing this uh, fascinating story with us and and bringing it to light for our English-speaking audience. Thanks so much for having me this was this was a blast I love it's my my paperback events were canceled because of COVID in the spring so 
I didn't get to have some good Pinedo conversations that I was looking forward to. So this is this a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes. 